You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was Vinnie Paz singing an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes. You'll find a link to send me a message, and you'll find a link to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece published at mondoweiss.net. This is written by Alice Rothschild. I write this with a mix of fatigue, anger, and frustration. The Palestine Rights Literature Festival will officially open tomorrow, September 22, at the University of Pennsylvania, and already the attacks from the usual suspects have begun. Because organizations like the ADL, the Jewish Federation, JCRC, and Hillel claim they are speaking for Jews, I also feel compelled to speak out as a Jew who is honored to be part of this festival, to say quite clearly, once again, not in my name. ADL et al., you do not speak for, quote, the Jewish people. Organizations that deem Palestinians as inherently dangerous and threatening to Jews, solely because of who they are as human beings, do not represent me and a growing number of generations of Jews who cannot tolerate the disinformation and contradictions surrounding the mythology of the State of Israel. Frankly, the ADL et al. are speaking from a core of racism, Islamophobia, and deep Jewish fragility that is part of a multi-million dollar Israeli Hasbara industry based on fear-mongering and demonization. I have recently returned from a trip to Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, bearing witness and interviewing human rights and civil society groups, and I have deep, ongoing, first-hand knowledge of the realities on the ground. Organizations that attack non-Palestinians for supporting Palestinian culture and liberation in the face of a brutal history of settler colonialism and dispossession that is unending are confusing criticisms of Israeli policy with real anti-Semitism, which is a form of bigotry grounded in white supremacy and fascism. It is clear to me that Palestinian aspirations do not come at the expense of Jewish safety and that one people's liberation can coexist with the others. This festival is an amazing opportunity to hear the voices of writers who are often denied a space in the public conversation. The original complaint against the festival spoke of, quote, anti-Israel bias and anti-Semitism. The initial intent of the state long before its founding in 1948 was to remove as many indigenous Palestinians as possible to create a state with a, quote, strong Jewish majority as an answer to European anti-Semitism and the Nazi Holocaust. 
that meant expelling Arabs or holding their communities under martial law. Decades of work fulfilling that mission brings us to today, a highly segregated society with a nation-state bill that clearly privileges Jews over the 20% of the population who remain within the 1948 borders and some 5.5 million Palestinians living under occupation and siege and a Jewish-Israeli population that lives in a shroud of hatred towards their understandably unsympathetic neighbors. Unless, of course, there is a military deal that can be reached, throwing Palestinians under the bus and enriching Israel's vaunted military and surveillance systems. Is this going to be the legacy of the Jewish people in the 21st century? Israel has been credibly accused of apartheid policies by numerous well-respected human rights organizations. To criticize this state of affairs is our moral obligation as Jews and as people committed to a post-colonial, more just world. In fact, it is the only possible way to move forward, to challenge the billions in military support and political cover. Our supine Congress, the powerful Israeli lobby with its millions of Christian Zionists, the willingly blind mainstream Jewish communities, that work has nothing to do with denigrating Jewish people and institutions solely because they are Jewish, and it is manipulative and deceptive to suggest that they are one and the same. Anxious Jewish students at University of Pennsylvania could learn a lot coming to this festival. Judging from my past experiences, they will be enlightened, challenged, and inspired. They may feel uncomfortable, but they will not be endangered. Like I said, I write this with a mixture of fatigue, anger, and frustration. The more this churns in my brain, I realize I also write from a sense of deep shame for my Jewish siblings and organizations who have turned their backs on the long history of progressive Jews rooting for the underclass, workers, women, LGBTQI, and African Americans fighting on the right side of history. This next piece is published at electronicintifada.net, written by Ali Abunama. A climate of fear is stifling free speech, academic research, and student activism about Palestine at British universities. This is the direct result of the government-mandated adoption and use of the so-called IHRA definition of anti-Semitism to investigate and punish alleged incidents of anti-Jewish bias. That definition, which has its roots in a project supported by Israel's notorious spying and assassination agency, Mossad, is heavily promoted by Israel and its lobby. An analysis of all the incidents recorded by the European Legal Support Center, ELSC, between January 2017 and May 2022, in which staff, students, or outside speakers were targeted with accusations of anti-Semitism, shows that the IHRA definition is being used not to combat bigotry against Jews, but to silence and intimidate critics of Israel. In total, ELSC recorded 40 such cases, sometimes providing legal advice to those accused. In 38 cases, the accusations of anti-Semitism proved to be unfounded, while two cases are ongoing. Overall, 27 individuals or groups faced investigations and often long disciplinary procedures, 
and two faced threats of legal action. 24 cases involved university staff, with 18 leading to formal investigations or disciplinary processes. In the case of formal hearings, all staff were exonerated of all charges. In other words, every allegation of anti-Semitism was found to be false, ELSC states in a new report co-authored with Brismes, the British Society for Middle East Studies, the largest academic association in Europe focused on the study of the region. In the other six cases involving staff, no formal complaint was made, the university declined to open an investigation, or the complaint was dismissed. Other cases involve student-organized activities and outside speakers. Typically, these events attracted demands from pro-Israel groups that they be canceled, and in four instances, universities did so. In another seven instances, institutions directly interfered in events or scholarship. In several cases, university administrations demanded that speakers endorse the IHRA definition in advance of an event, or impose strict conditions on student groups, even monitoring and recording their events. In one case, Somdeep Sen, a professor at Denmark's Roskilde University, was invited to the University of Glasgow in 2021 to lecture about his book recently published by Cornell University Press, Decolonizing Palestine, Hamas Between Anti-Colonial and Post-Colonial. The University of Glasgow's Jewish Society lodged what ELSC and Brismis called a spurious complaint asserting that the topic of the lecture was anti-Semitic and that Jewish students could be harmed. In response, administrators demanded that Sen provide information in advance about the content of his lecture and pledge not to say anything that would contravene the IHRA definition. Quote, Since the university's requests were discriminatory and undermined academic freedom, Dr. Sen decided to pull out and the event was cancelled, the report states. The IHRA definition comes with 11 illustrative examples of anti-Semitism, the majority of which actually concern criticisms of Israel and its officially racist ideology, Zionism. The effect of applying them is basically to outlaw discussion of Israel's history and present practices. One of the more notorious examples asserts that it is anti-Semitic to claim, quote, that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. How should I discuss the 1948 colonial ethnic cleansing that led to the creation of the State of Israel, one educator quoted in the report asked. Wasn't that, to use the words of one of the examples of anti-Semitism included in the definition, an endeavor to create a state based on a racist deployment of violence? How should I approach the persistence of these practices of violence along racial lines carried out by the State of Israel? How should I discuss the endeavor of Israel's state courts to expel Palestinians from their homes, the educator added. Can I raise the question with my students or with guest speakers or in my research? Am I even allowed to talk about these things? While the IHRA definition is often marketed as non-legally binding, it has been imposed by the British government. Dismayed that relatively few UK universities had adopted the definition voluntarily, Britain's then Education Secretary threatened institutions in 2020 with financial penalties if they did not do so. 
As a result of those threats, three-quarters of UK universities have now adopted some version of the IHRA definition as a basis of their policies. In other countries, too, it has often taken on quasi-legal force, leading to many similar abuses. The bogus complaints of anti-Semitism are frequently accompanied by defamation and media smear campaigns against student groups, academics, and outside speakers, causing severe distress and disruption to the lives and careers of those targeted. Quote, During the first investigation with the media smears, I felt really helpless and powerless at that point as the university was looking out for its own interests, one staff person said. They kept telling me not to say anything to the media. At that point, I just kept quiet. I felt really alone. It was just me. They make you waste time, sap your energy, and make you exhausted. They make you not perform to your ability because you have other things to think about, said one student targeted by false accusations. You learn that the university is not there for you. Different interests trump your rights. It affected me mentally. It took a lot of time and mental effort, another targeted student said. It caused a lot of stress. It served as a distraction from other important things in my life. It is often people from marginalized communities who are the target of disciplinary procedures and accusations. Quote, specifically, Palestinian students and staff who express their respective experiences of oppression and discrimination and who talk about the history of the oppression of their people are among those targeted, alongside other students and staff who are frequently black and minority ethnic who expressed solidarity with the plight of Palestinians, the report notes. Those subjected to false accusations are often fearful about their future careers and reputations, leaving them much more cautious about expressing their views openly. Although the report doesn't say it explicitly, inducing terror is likely the desired outcome of the pro-Israel groups that lodge these kind of false complaints. Canary Mission, for example, a Zionist group that smears student Palestine activists on U.S. campuses, has made damaging their future careers one of its goals, with the aim of intimidating others into silence about Israel's violations of Palestinian rights. Now, ELSC and Brismis are calling on the U.K. government to stop imposing the IHRA definition, and on universities that have adopted it to stop using it and to rescind decisions taken on its basis. They are also urging the UK's National Union of Students, which is supposed to defend student rights, to reverse its own adoption of the IHRA definition. Instead, academic bodies and student organizations should, quote, lobby university management to protect the academic freedom and freedom of expression of all members of their campus community. From control of the conversation to actual, literal control of individuals' movements, this next piece is from IPSnews.net, written by Abigail Van Neely. Sundas scans the news before she heads home, checking for signs that her 30-minute commute could turn into a four-hour-long slog. Any incident could make travel difficult. Sometimes Sundas waits for her father to call and tell her if the checkpoints around their home are open. After living in Hebron, a city in the West Bank, for the last 20 years, she is used to planning her day around unpredictability. 
Obstacles to movement in the West Bank have increased in the last two years, preventing Palestinians from accessing hospitals, urban centers, and agricultural areas. Restrictions and delays are the new normal. In a recent review, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, reports an 8% increase in the overall recorded number of physical barriers from 593 in 2020 to 645 in 2023. They range in scale from elaborate checkpoints guarded by military towers to a pile of rocks in the middle of the road. The number of barriers has fluctuated over the past years. However, OCHA finds a notable 35% increase, especially in the number of constantly staffed checkpoints in strategic areas. Zone C, the area still under Israeli administrative and police control, is home to most roads and most obstacles to movement. It covers 60% of the West Bank. Under international law, Israel must facilitate the free movement of Palestinians in the occupied territories. Cities' entry points and main roads are often shut down without warning for arbitrary, quote, security reasons. The objective of the occupying forces is to make sure that they can isolate entire areas if security requires to do so. Andrea Di Domenico, the deputy head of OCHA's Office for the Occupied Palestinian Territory in Jerusalem, explains, It's always a little bit of an unknown. When you get out, you don't know when you will be able to come back. As a result, most activities require extensive coordination, whether it's getting a fire truck past checkpoints in time, filtering passengers off and on a bus during an ID check, or planning a trip to visit relatives. The H2 area of Hebron is one of the most restricted in the West Bank. Facial recognition cameras, metal detectors, and detention and interrogation facilities fortify 28 checkpoints that separate the Israeli-controlled parts of the city. To get to her house in the H2, Sundas knows she must pass through at least two checkpoints. But planning is difficult. There aren't specific times when the checkpoints will be open. If they are closed, there aren't waiting areas. Sundas says when that happens, she hopes there's a nice guard and that he speaks Arabic or English and explains that she's just trying to get home. The checkpoint on the way to Sundas's university was closed for three months following a stabbing incident in 2016. She remembers the streets being crowded with soldiers as she was walking one chilly winter. Sundas put her hands in her jacket pockets to warm them. 100 meters away, a guard she recognized yelled at her to remove her hands. Now she says she is cautious about even buying a kitchen knife she may get in trouble for carrying home. There are other challenges to navigating the historic Palestinian city littered with checkpoints. Di Domenico tells stories of an elderly woman who stopped going out to avoid being harassed by soldiers. If Israeli settlers are in the streets, they can attack me anytime they want, Sundas says. When soldiers ask for her ID, Sundas says they want her ID number, not her name. They consider us a number. Permits control life across the occupied Palestinian territories. Musab, a university student in Nablus, submitted six permit applications for travel to receive cancer treatment. All were denied. He was finally forced to travel to Jordan twice without his father for care. 
This is so inhumane. How can this happen in any place in the world? Why are they blocking me from accompanying my son? I just want to hold his hand when he goes for surgery, Masab's father told WHO. Stories like Masab's are common as patients across the West Bank and Gaza are kept from seeking health care by permit restrictions. According to OCHA, in 2022, 15% of patients' applications to visit Israeli health facilities in East Jerusalem were not approved in time for their appointments. 93% of ambulances were delayed because patients were required to transfer to Israeli-licensed vehicles. The World Health Organization, WHO, reports that 160,000 physical restrictions in Zone C have led many communities to depend on mobile clinics funded by humanitarian aid. This year, OCHA's humanitarian response plan was only 33% funded. OCHA warns that humanitarian needs are deepening because of restrictions of movements of Palestinians inside the West Bank. This undermines their access to livelihoods and essential services such as health care and education, Florencia Soto Nino, associate spokesperson of the Secretary General, told reporters. Walls aggravate these humanitarian issues. A now 65% constructed barrier runs along the border of the West Bank and inside the territory, often carving out Israeli settlements, dividing communities, and sometimes even literally running through houses. To enter East Jerusalem, women under 50 and men under 55 with West Bank IDs are required to show permits from Israeli authorities. Even then, they can only use three of the 13 checkpoints. Palestinian farmers have also been separated from their land and livelihoods. According to Ocha, many private farms have been trapped inside areas Israeli military forces established as firing zones. As a result, they are sometimes only accessible twice a year. The UN Food and Agricultural Organization reports that the region's agricultural yield has been reduced by almost 70% because Palestinians have had to abandon their land. The size of a farmer's plot determines when and for how long it can be tended. Farmers must coordinate times when soldiers will open the gates that allow them onto their land. Harvest days are especially tricky. In some cases, Di Domenico says, an agricultural permit is only given to the owner of the land and none of their laborers. Meanwhile, Di Domenico describes Gaza, a territory separated from Israel by a 12-meter-high wall, as a gigantic prison for 2.3 million Palestinians. Here, less physical obstacles are required to limit movement. It is the only place on the planet where, when a war starts, people cannot flee, Di Domenico said. And as we'll hear at the end of this piece, and if you're watching the news, uh, the war, I shouldn't say the war has started. The war has been continuous since the Nakba, since the, the start of Israel. Sometimes the attacks are fewer and sometimes they are greater. And we're, we're in a period now where the attacks are greater and Israel is in the process again of attacking Gaza. And I'll just circle back to the 
quote I just read from this piece, which was written long before the current increase in hostilities. It is the only place on the planet where, when a war starts, people cannot flee. And I'll digress for another moment. Some leader in Israel told Gazan civilians to run away because they're going to attack everywhere that they believe is, is a location of Hamas or of, or of militants, but they cannot flee. There is nowhere for them to flee to because Israel does not let them leave Gaza except under strict conditions. Riyad Mansour, permanent observer of Palestine to the United Nations, expressed disappointment at the, quote, paralysis of the international community when it came to protecting Palestinian people from discrimination during a meeting of the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of Palestinian People at the end of August. At the same time, OCHA is working to facilitate, quote, humanitarian corridors to ensure that basic services are delivered, DiDomenico says. For instance, the office has helped teachers reach communities where students would have had to walk for miles. DiDomenico adds that reports can facilitate important discussions. Israeli authorities who have contested materials OCHA produced in the past have been invited to ride along while UN agents map new barriers. Still, there is always a potential of tension flying in the air, even for UN agents, DiDomenico says. You constantly live with this tension. Tension's one thing you constantly live with, and you also constantly live with physical attacks if you're a Palestinian in the West Bank and in Gaza. This piece is published at imemc.org. That stands for the International Middle East Media Center. On Wednesday, and this was published September 21, 2023, on Wednesday, illegal Israeli colonizers assaulted a number of Palestinian citizens in the town of Bani Naim, east of Hebron, in the southern occupied West Bank, and erected a tent and livestock pen in Masafar Yada, south of Hebron. Illegal Israeli colonizers attacked on Wednesday evening. Palestinian citizens in the town of Bani Naim, east of the southern West Bank city of Hebron, injuring two people. Media sources said that a group of illegal colonists assaulted a number of Palestinians in the Yaqin area of Bani Naim, causing two citizens to sustain a bruising. Medical sources at the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, PRCS, said that their medics provided treatment to a number of citizens who were assaulted by Israeli settlers. Meanwhile, south of Hebron, in Masafar Yada, a group of colonizers erected on Wednesday a tent and livestock pen on Palestinian-owned lands in the area. Under the full protection of occupation soldiers, a number of settlers from the nearby illegal Avigayil colony set up a tent and livestock pen on land owned by local Palestinian citizens. Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention states, quote, the occupying power, 
in this case Israel, shall not deport or transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies, in this case, Palestine. And here's a piece published at daysofpalestine.ps. Israeli settlers launched on Thursday, September 21, an attack on the homes of Palestinians in the Masuida area of the Burqa region, located in the northwest of Nablus. According to Diab Haji, a resident of the Masuida area, a group of settlers attacked the house of Musa Dais and pelted it with stones, causing damage to its windows. They also vandalized two vehicles by smashing their windows and puncturing their tires. Haji further explained that the settlers attempted to physically assault him and used tear gas against him as he returned to his home. He emphasized that the area has witnessed numerous attacks by settlers, especially since it is situated along the road connecting Janine and Nablus, which sees almost daily settler presence. He also pointed out that the settlers placed sharp metal rods on the main road. Since occupying the West Bank in 1967, Israel has misappropriated more than 2 million dunams of land there for its own purposes, including building and expanding settlements and paving roads for settlers. Some areas have been officially taken over by the state, others through daily acts of settler violence. These two seemingly unrelated tracks are both forms of state violence. The Israeli apartheid regime and its representatives actively aid and abet the settlers' violence as part of a strategy to cement the takeover of Palestinian land. And from Haaretz.com, here is a piece by Hagar Shazaf. The Israeli military prevented a tour by left-wing activists of a Palestinian village on Saturday, declaring it a closed military zone for the day. The residents of Ain al-Rashash routinely suffer from settler harassment and is in an area where four herding communities have fled following intimidation over the past year. As they approached the village, participants in the tour were presented with the military's order, signed by Benjamin Brigade Commander Liron Bitten. The military has yet to respond to a request for comment. By declaring an area closed, the military can restrict entry temporarily. Regulations call for such orders to be issued only to protect security or public order, but they are often used in the West Bank to prevent demonstrations and restrict freedom of movement. The organization that organized the tour, looking the occupation in the eye, petitioned the Supreme Court after receiving the order. Attorneys Riham Nasra and Alon Sapir accused the military of a systemic practice and recurring pattern to use military zone orders to block activists from the West Bank. Quote, the petitioners intend to use their status as Israeli citizens within, with rights, unlike Palestinian residents, to challenge the military dictatorship in the West Bank, they wrote in the petition. Ain al-Rashash is named after a nearby spring, which was an important water source for the community until recently. It has recently been taken over by settlers who have built a road connecting it to outposts and diverted its water to fill an artificial pond. The government formalized a nearby outpost earlier this year. In June, settlers attacked the village, breaking windows, destroying a solar power facility, and wounding an elderly resident. Settlers regularly enter the village to take pictures of residents and try to trespass into their homes. 
They also disrupt villagers' lives in other ways, from driving tractors at their livestock and restricting where their herds can graze. According to a UN report released this week, since 2022, over 1,100 Palestinians have been driven out of West Bank herding communities by settler violence. Ain al-Rashash is home to around 85 people who make their living from herding. And here's an article from Haaretz on another incident in which a group attempting to tour some communities was attacked. This written by Hagar Shazaf. Activists from the Israeli far-right Im Tirtzu organization disturbed on Wednesday a delegation of foreign diplomats visiting Palestinian communities near Ramallah in the West Bank. The tour was organized by the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem. The far-right activists harassed the diplomats and followed the group on visits to a Palestinian village in Area B of the West Bank, a territory under Palestinian civil control, but joint security control with Israel. The activists were later arrested by the Palestinian Authority security forces and transferred to Israel. According to B'Tselem, one of the activists even waved his gun in front of the Palestinian forces. A European diplomat source told Haaretz that the EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Joseph Borrell, talked with Israel's Foreign Minister Eli Cohen about the incident on Wednesday night. The European Union delegation to the Palestinians took to X, formerly known as Twitter, writing that the diplomats were violently harassed by Israeli settlers. We reiterate our concern over the growing problem of settler violence and call on Israel's authorities to take action against violent settlers, they wrote. The tour went through several Palestinian villages that were deserted during the last year due to settler violence. After several right-wing activists disrupted the diplomats' visit, the delegation attempted to avoid them by entering Taibe, a West Bank village northeast of Ramallah in Area B. One of the foreign diplomats told Haaretz that Israeli authorities knew about the visit beforehand. When things started to escalate, we contacted the Israeli army and asked for security, but nothing happened and no one came. The diplomats are furious about what happened and are considering voicing their protest. Quote, what happened was unprecedented, a diplomatic source told Haaretz. Foreign diplomats have joined tours by B'Tselem and other organizations many times in the past, and there has never been such violent and aggressive behavior. They harassed the delegation, some of them were armed, and they followed the group into Area B. According to B'Tselem, the foreign delegation has also attempted to contact the police, but they did not respond. The M. Tirtzu organization also took to X, writing that when its activists entered Taibe, they were shot at by Palestinian assailants who carried Kalishnikovs. All this happened while we were attempting to expose a political subverting tour of the far-left organization B'Tselem, who led a delegation of foreign diplomats. No terrorist and no terrorist activity will deter us from revealing the truth, they wrote. A security source told Haaretz that the army received reports according to which the Palestinian Authority security forces shot in the air after two settlers' vehicles entered the village. The source added that one of the settlers was detained by the Palestinian Authority security forces and transferred to the Israeli army. And here is a fact sheet 
that was released on September 21st, 2023 by OCHA, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Displacement of Palestinian herders amid increasing settler violence. Settler violence has been increasing across the West Bank over the past years. Three settler-related incidents per day occurred on average in the first eight months of 2023, compared to an average of two per day in 2022 and one per day the year before. This is the highest daily average of settler-related incidents affecting Palestinians since the UN started recording this data in 2006. In August 2023, the United Nations and its humanitarian partners assessed the humanitarian needs of 63 Palestinian herding communities across the West Bank through key informant interviews. The 63 communities home to around 10,000 people, including 24% of whom are women and 51% children, were selected based on their higher vulnerability level, proximity to settlements, and exposure to settler violence. A total of 1,105 people from 28 communities, about 12% of their population, have been displaced from their places of residence since 2022, citing settler violence and the prevention of access to grazing land by settlers as the primary reason. Those displaced have moved to towns or other rural areas that they consider safer. Most of those displaced were in the governorates of Ramallah, Nablus, and Hebron, which also have the highest number of Israeli settlement outposts. Four communities have been completely displaced and are now empty, including two that were vacated during the assessment. In six other communities, over 50% of the residents left since 2022, and in seven additional communities, more than 25% of the community has left. The documented number of people displaced does not include those Palestinian herders that have moved for seasonal reasons and includes those who indicated their willingness to return if conditions improve. Some 93% of the communities reported a higher frequency of settler violence and 90% reported that the severity of the settler violence had increased since the beginning of 2022. The most common settler-related incidents are prevention of access to land, physical attacks against residents, threats and intimidation, grazing of flocks by settlers on Palestinian crops, damaging property, and cultivating or fencing off agriculture or grazing land. Comparative data for 41 of the communities was available from an assessment conducted by the UN and its humanitarian partners in 2013. 24 of those communities have recorded a 39% decrease in the total population size. In these 41 communities, the overall population growth was 10% lower than the projected growth rate based on the West Bank average. The communities that have recorded the highest population growth have their master plans approved by Israeli authorities. Almost all of the communities, 55, reported a decrease in their number of livestock, and at least 90% reported a reduction in cultivated grazing land. Some 79% of communities stopped accessing land due to attacks by settlers, and 60% cited the expansion of settlements into grazing land 
or the takeover of land by settlers as reasons for the decrease. Some 62% of the communities that cited settler violence as one of the main reasons for the reduction in access to cultivated grazing land had their crops destroyed by arson attacks, physical sabotage, or by settlers grazing flocks on land that Palestinian herders had relied on. Some 64% of the communities who cited administrative measures as a reason for the reduction in access to cultivated grazing land were affected by the declaration of a closed military area, which the Israeli authorities often impose following confrontations between Palestinian communities and Israeli settlers. Some 71% of the communities that cited administrative obstacles had received land confiscation orders, including orders that were acted upon, while 32% of the communities had all or part of their herds confiscated by the Israeli authorities. Some 66% of the communities reported that access to water had been negatively affected by settler violence. Of those communities, 46% reported that settlers had polluted, vandalized, or taken over water sources on which Palestinian herders had relied. More than half of the communities who reported education-related obstacles cited settler violence as a reason for the difficulties in reaching education, while 36% cited settler violence as affecting access to health care services. In 81% of the communities, residents had filed complaints with the Israeli police in some or most of the settler violence incidents that they faced. However, only 6% of these community representatives were aware of any follow-up actions being taken by the Israeli authorities. A discriminatory planning regime in Area C prevented 71% of the communities from building new structures. In all of the communities, OCHA documented 59 demolition incidents that were carried out by Israeli authorities in 2022 and 2023. As a result of those demolitions, 262 people lost their homes. To cope with intensifying settler violence and loss of access to grazing land, in 95% of the communities, residents have sold part of their livestock. In 71%, residents had borrowed money to pay for fodder, and 35% residents had changed their livelihood, and 30% were feeding their livestock with substandard food. Palestinian herders should be self-reliant based on their established livelihoods. Instead, they need humanitarian assistance because of settler violence and the failure of Israeli authorities to hold perpetrators accountable. This, together with Palestinians' inability to obtain approvals to build, demolitions, evictions, movement restrictions, and ongoing settlement expansion, create a coercive environment that contributes to displacement that may amount to forcible transfer, a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention. In addition to the urgent need to, for protection from settler violence and an end to the coercive environment, Palestinian herders require support for their livelihoods, including to feed and protect their herds, and humanitarian assistance to address their basic needs for shelter, food, water, education, and health care. And this next piece is published by Bitsalem and is uh, found at bitsalem.org. The pogroms are working. The transfer is already happening. 
For decades, Israel has employed a slew of measures designed to make life in dozens of Palestinian communities throughout the West Bank miserable. This is part of an attempt to force residents of these communities to uproot themselves, seemingly of their own accord. Once that is achieved, the state can realize its goal of taking over the land. To advance this objective, Israel forbids members of these communities from building homes, agricultural structures, or public buildings. It does not allow them to connect to the water and power grids or build roads, and when they do, as they have no other choice, Israel threatens demolition, often delivering on these threats. Settler violence is another tool Israel employs to further torment Palestinians living in these communities. Such attacks have grown significantly worse under the current government, turning life in some places into an unending nightmare and denying residents any possibility of living with even minimal dignity. The violence has robbed Palestinian residents of their ability to continue earning a living. It has terrorized them to the point of fearing for their lives and made them internalize the understanding that there is no one to protect them. This reality has left these communities with no other choice, and several of them have uprooted themselves, leaving hearth and home for safer places. Dozens of communities scattered throughout the West Bank live in similar conditions. If Israel continues this policy, their residents may also be displaced, freeing Israel to achieve its goal and take over their land. Background Dozens of Palestinian shepherding communities are scattered across the West Bank. Because Israel considers these communities to be, quote, unrecognized, it does not allow them to connect to the water and power grids or the road system. Israel also considers all structures built in these communities, homes, public buildings, and agricultural structures, illegal, and issues demolition orders against them, which in some cases it executes. Some structures have been demolished and rebuilt several times. In recent years, settlers have built dozens of outposts and small farms near these communities with the aid of the state. And since then, violence against Palestinians living in the area has increased, reaching new heights under the current government. These violent attacks, which have become a terrifying daily routine, include settlers driving Palestinian shepherds and farmers out of pasture lands and farm fields, physically assaulting residents of the communities, entering their homes in the middle of the night, setting fire to Palestinian property, scaring livestock, destroying crops, theft, and road closures. Palestinian residents have also reported water tank valves being opened and settler flocks being led to drink in Palestinian water reservoirs. In these circumstances, residents of these communities could no longer continue going out to their pasture lands and farm fields. With the Palestinians gone, settlers in some places began cultivating their fields under the protection of soldiers. In other places, settlers began grazing their owned flocks in pasture lands that had until recently been used by Palestinian shepherds. Without access to pasture lands, Palestinians have had to switch to purchasing fodder and water for their flocks at high cost, which has caused significant financial losses, effectively destroying their livelihoods. The current government plays a significant role in this state of affairs. 
While it did not introduce restrictions on Palestinian construction, house demolitions, and the use of settler violence to take control of Palestinian land, it does lend full legitimacy to settler violence against Palestinians by publicly encouraging and supporting its perpetrators. Members of this government have themselves led such violence in the past. They are now the people in charge of designing policy. They allocate the funding that finances the violence, and they are responsible for enforcing the law on settlers who attack Palestinians. This government does not even bother with the empty condemnations once heard after these acts of violence, praising violent settlers instead. Where previous governments insisted on keeping up the charade of a functioning law enforcement system that investigates and prosecutes Israelis who harm Palestinians, members of this government work to erase all trace of it, with one minister calling to erase Huara, members of coalition parties paying a hospital visit to an Israeli suspected of killing a Palestinian, and ministers refusing to condemn the violence, all while condoning one pogrom in a Palestinian community after another. The first to suffer the consequences of this change are the most isolated, most vulnerable Palestinian communities. These communities live in the most basic conditions, surrounded by settlement outposts whose residents are given carte blanche to harm them with impunity. If Palestinians in more established communities like Trumusaya and Um Safa received no protection while soldiers and police officers worked together with the pogromists, what hope do residents of these isolated shepherding communities have? Fearing for their very survival, realizing that they and their children have been abandoned to their fate, all while losing their sources of income, has understandably left them with no way to continue living in their communities and has forced them to leave. In the past two years, at least six West Bank communities have been displaced. Four of the communities lived to the north and northeast of Ramallah. Some of their members lived on land owned by other Palestinians who had agreed to let them live there after they were displaced from other places within Israel and around the West Bank. Several Israeli residential and farming outposts have been established around these communities in recent years, with the state's help, the first of which... Misha's farm was established in 2018. Like elsewhere in the West Bank, these settlement outposts were almost immediately connected to the water and power grids, as well as the road system. They have enjoyed immunity from demolition, and their residents work in full concert with the military, which provides them with protection. Some of these outposts were established in areas where officially no communities may be built, as Israel has declared them firing zones but nevertheless received the support of the state. The four displaced communities in this area are Ras Aten. On 7 July 2022, the roughly 120 members of this community, about half of them minors, uprooted themselves. The community was established in the late 1960s by Palestinians, whom Israel had displaced from the South Hebron Hills on privately owned and registered Palestinian land belonging to residents of Kafr Malik and al Mukhair. Over the years, the civil administration issued demolition orders against some of the resident structures, and until today, Israel had demolished three non-residential structures in the community. The civil administration had also issued a demolition order for the school built by community residents. 
In 2018, Misha's Farm, a settlement outpost, was built near the community, and following its establishment, community residents reported a significant increase in violent incidents, including harassment, theft, vandalism, and verbal violence, which became a daily routine. Ein Samia on 22 May 2023, the last remaining residents of the community of Ein Samia, home to 28 families with a total of about 200 members, abandoned their homes. The community settled at the site on lands leased from residents of nearby Kafr Malik in 1980, after being displaced by Israel several times from other places. Over the years, the civil administration issued demolition orders against some of the resident structures, and until today, Israel has demolished 21 houses in the community, which had been home to 83 people, including 52 minors, as well as another 28 non-residential buildings. The civil administration also issued a demolition order for the community's school, which was supposed to serve its roughly 40 children. In October 2022, the Jerusalem District Court dismissed a petition filed by local residents to suspend the demolition. The residents left before the demolition order was executed. Residents of Ein Samia also reported a significant increase in settler violence beginning in 2018. A week before the community left, the police confiscated dozens of sheep and goats from its residents on the false claim that they had been stolen from settlers. Settlers entered the community during the night, attacked local residents and the school, flew a drone above them, and torched pasture lands. They also let their flock loose in the community's farm fields, and the animals consumed their entire crop. Al-Baka On July 10, 2023, 33 people, including 21 minors, were displaced. On September 1, 2023, the last remaining family, numbering five people, including one minor, was displaced too. Their departure was preceded by daily attacks by settlers who had established a farm about 50 meters away from the community's homes, installed solar panels connected to the water infrastructure serving the nearby outpost of Nev Arez, and took control of the community's access road to the main road. The settlers had also begun grazing their flock, numbering between 60 and 70 heads of sheep, in the community's pasture lands and harassing shepherds from the community who were out grazing their own flocks. On 7 July 2023, at around 6.30 a.m., a tent in the community, which was more isolated than others, was set on fire. The family was out at the time, as they had been spending their nights elsewhere ever since the establishment of the outpost for fear of settler attacks. The family saw the fire from a distance and called the police, but no one came to the scene. Al Kabun. The community, which was home to 12 families numbering 86 residents, including 26 minors, was displaced in early August 2023. The community had lived at the site since 1996 after Israel forced its members out of the Negev desert in the early 1950s. Over the years, the civil administration issued demolition orders against some of the resident structures, and until today, Israel had demolished six houses which had been home to 41 people, including 18 minors, and 12 non-residential buildings. In February of this year, settlers established an outpost near the community. Inside an area, Israel had declared a firing zone. 
The settlers harassed residents who reported they walked around their houses, even entering them, arrived on horseback and ATVs late at night, intimidated them, took over their farm fields, and prevented them from grazing their flock. At least two more communities were forcibly displaced in the South Hebron Hills. The first was Kirbet Simri, a hamlet of two families belonging to two brothers with a total of 20 members, including eight miners. In 1998, the outpost of Mitzpeh Yair was established on top of the hill where the community had lived, and increased violence followed. Settlers harassed community members, threatened them, entered their homes, and prevented them from grazing their flocks. In 2020, settlers brought in a herd of cattle, which they grazed on land that residents of the community had used to graze. In July 2022, the residents decided to leave. The second community to leave was Wadadi Atata, also numbering 20 residents, including 12 miners. The community had lived at the site for about 50 years. Roughly two years ago, settlers established an outpost about 500 meters away from the community's homes. Since then, settlers had repeatedly blocked community members' access to pasture lands around their homes, including by using a drone to scare and scatter the flock. Armed settlers also repeatedly entered residents' homes, in some cases with a dog, at all hours, attacking community members, beating them, and threatening them at gunpoint. Additionally, about a year ago, the civil administration issued demolition orders for all structures in the small hamlet three residential structures, and a livestock enclosure. On 27 June 2023, two armed settlers entered the community and threatened one of the residents who was grazing his sheep near his house. He fled to call family members for help, and the settlers tried to steal the sheep. But when they saw the residents approaching, they abandoned them and returned to the outpost. The family contacted the police, but they refused to help them. After this incident, the family came to the decision the danger was too great and they had to leave. These communities did not make the decision to uproot themselves in a void. It is the direct result of Israel's policy, which is designed to achieve this exact outcome, displacing Palestinians and reducing their living space in order to transfer their land to Jewish hands. The policy rests on a slew of restrictions and abusive measures and practices by the state and its agents, with varying degrees of severity and pursued both unofficially and officially. Israel effectively forbids Palestinian construction and development in Area C, which comprises 60% of the West Bank. The area is home to 200,000 to 300,000 Palestinians, thousands of whom live in dozens of shepherding and farming communities. Though most Palestinian residents of the West Bank live in areas defined as A and B under the Oslo Accords, which were signed as five-year interim agreement about 30 years ago, all Palestinians are impacted by the ban on building. The reason is that when the Oslo Accords were signed, areas A and B were already largely populated, while areas with potential for urban, agricultural, and economic development remained mostly in Area C, and the Palestinian population has nearly doubled since. To prevent Palestinian construction in Area C, Israel has defined approximately 60% of it as banned for Palestinian construction by attaching various legal definitions to large and sometimes overlapping areas, quote, state land, 
comprises about 35% of Area C. Military training grounds or firing zones comprise about 30% of Area C. Nature reserves and national parks cover another 14% and settlement jurisdictions comprise another 16% of Area C. Israel is waging an unrelenting war against Palestinians living in these areas, repeatedly driving them away from their land on false pretenses, such as military training, demolishing their homes, and confiscating their property. In the remaining 40% of Area C, Israel, which has full and exclusive control over building and planning in the West Bank, enforces extreme restrictions on construction and development. The civil administration refuses to prepare master plans for the vast majority of Palestinian communities in this area. The few master plans that have been approved by the civil administration, accounting for less than 1% of Area C and in areas that are mostly already built up, do not meet planning criteria accepted in the world today. The odds of a Palestinian receiving a building permit even on privately owned land are minuscule. According to figures the civil administration provided to Peace Now, in the decade between 2009 and 2018, only 98 permits for residential, industrial, agricultural, and infrastructure construction were approved out of 4,422 permit applications submitted, or 2%. According to figures provided to the Israeli NGO BIMCOM, of 2,550 applications submitted between 2016 and 2020, 24 were approved, less than 1%. The number of permit applications submitted does not necessarily reflect Palestinians' construction needs, since most Palestinians no longer go to the trouble of submitting building permit applications, knowing that they will be rejected anyway. The lack of master plans prevents not just residential construction, but also construction for public purposes, such as schools and medical facilities, as well as infrastructure, including connections to the road system and water and power grids. Due to climate change, restrictions on infrastructure make life harder for Palestinian residents by the year. Not only does Israel deny residents connections to infrastructure, but it also prevents them from taking care of their needs independently, prohibiting the digging of water cisterns and the installation of solar systems and regularly confiscating water tanks. Without connections to running water, water consumption in these communities is 26 liters per day per person, which is similar to water consumption in disaster zones and is about a quarter of the 100 liters per day per person recommended by the World Health Organization. Given these conditions, Palestinians are forced to advance development in their communities and build their houses without permits. They do this not because they are criminals, but because they have no possibility of building legally. The civil administration issues demolition orders against these structures, sometimes executing them. According to Bitzalem figures, between 2006 and 31 July 2023, Israel demolished 2,123 homes across the West Bank. 8,580 people lost their homes in these demolitions, including 4,324 minors. During this time, Israel also demolished 3,387 non-residential structures. Thus, by using a sterile legal and urban planning vocabulary, 
and latching on to military orders and planning and building laws, Israel manages to drive Palestinians out of vast areas it sets its sights on and corral them into smaller areas where it puts their lives on hold and applies policies designed to deny them any development. Palestinians are forced to live in constant uncertainty regarding their future and in never-ending fear that civil administration personnel will come to deliver demolition orders or demolish what they have already built. They live in a state of constant deprivation in conditions that cannot begin to be compared to those in the settlements built near their communities and often on their lands. Israeli land grab is also pursued via daily acts of violence carried out by bands of settlers operating without fear of repercussions who are armed, supported, encouraged, and funded by the state, whether directly or indirectly. These acts of violence are part of a broad strategy designed to displace Palestinians from Area C. In recent years, about 70, quote, agricultural farms have been established throughout the West Bank. Starting a farm requires far fewer resources than building a settlement, and through grazing sheep and cattle, these farms enable easy takeover of vast areas spanning thousands of dunams, which usually contain pasture land, water resources, and land cultivated by Palestinians. Settlers residing in these farms terrorize Palestinians living near them. The key tactics used by settlers include taking over pasture land by grazing sheep and cattle on it, racing ATVs into Palestinian flocks, and flying drones over them to scare and scatter the animals using physical violence against Palestinian residents of the communities, in pasture lands and farm fields and inside their homes, and damaging water sources. Using these tactics, settlers have managed to drive Palestinian shepherds and farmers from the fields, pasture lands, and water sources they had relied on for generations and take control of them. Research conducted by B'Tselem about two years ago indicated that five small settler farms with just a few dozen residents, usually a family or two and some youths, have taken over an area spanning a total of more than 28,000 dunams. One dunam equals 1,000 square meters of farmland and pasture land used by Palestinian communities for generations. The military, which is well aware of these acts, avoids confronting violent settlers as a matter of policy, and instead soldiers sometimes participate in these acts themselves or protect the settlers from a distance. Israel's inaction continues after settler attacks on Palestinians have taken place, with enforcement authorities doing their utmost to avoid responding to these incidents. Complaints are difficult to file, and in the very few cases in which investigations are, in fact, opened, the system quickly whitewashes them. Indictments are hardly ever filed against settlers who harm Palestinians, and those that are filed usually cite minor offenses with token penalties to match in the rare instance of a conviction. This is nothing new. Violence committed by settlers against Palestinians has been documented since the very early days of the occupation in countless government documents and dossiers. Thousands of testimonies from Palestinians and soldiers, books, reports by Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights organizations, and thousands of media stories. 
This broad, consistent documentation has had almost no effect on settler violence against Palestinians, which has long since become part and parcel of life under the occupation in the West Bank. This policy has left Palestinians without any protection, denied even the right to defend themselves against people invading their homes. When Palestinians try to fend off attacking settlers, including by throwing stones, soldiers who until then stood by or participated in the attack fire tear gas canisters, stun grenades, rubber-coated metal bullets, and even live rounds at them. In some cases, Palestinians are also arrested and some are prosecuted. The state not only legitimizes violence against Palestinians, but also legitimizes the results of these acts, allowing settlers to remain on land they forcibly took from Palestinians. The military forbids Palestinians from entering these areas, and the state fully supports the settlements established on them. Dozens of outposts and farming outposts built without official permission are left standing, while Israel provides support through government ministries, the settlement division of the World Zionist Organization, and regional councils in the West Bank. The state also subsidizes financial endeavors in the outposts, including agricultural facilities, provides support to new farmers and for shepherding, allocates water and legally defends outposts in petitions for their removal. Israel works to make the lives of residents and communities located in areas it covers miserable to the point that they can no longer take it and uproot themselves, leaving their homes and land for the state to take. This policy is implemented using two parallel tracks. In one track, given a stamp of approval by military orders, legal advisors, and the Supreme Court, the state evicts Palestinians from their land. In the other parallel track, Settlers use violence against Palestinians, aided and abetted by state forces, and sometimes with their participation. This policy has led to the forcible transfer of at least six communities, but many other communities throughout the West Bank experience the same brutality and are under an immediate threat of expulsion. This is an illegal policy that implicates Israel in the war crime of forcible transfer. International law, which Israel is obligated to respect and has undertaken to abide by, forbids the forcible transfer of residents of an occupied territory, no matter the circumstances. The fact that this particular case does not involve soldiers arriving at residents' homes and physically forcing them out is irrelevant. Creating a coercive environment that leaves residents no other choice is sufficient to find Israel liable for this crime. These communities are not displaced because of some natural disaster or other unavoidable circumstances. It is a choice the apartheid regime is making in order to realize its goal of maintaining Jewish supremacy in the entire area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. This regime views land as a resource designed to serve the Jewish public only, and so land is, therefore, used almost exclusively for the development and expansion of existing Jewish settlements and the establishment of new ones. As such, resisting the ongoing transfer is a duty, and there is obviously no obligation to continue cooperating with the implementation of the policies that drive it. Growing segments of the Israeli public have recently declared their refusal to serve in the army in an undemocratic country. There is nothing more worthy of refusing than participating in the commission of a war crime and the implementation 
of a transfer policy. And those stories just show a tiny little sliver of the oppression that the Palestinians live under in the state of Israel and in the occupation of the Israeli forces. Here's a couple of pieces that were published today as uh, accelerated violence um, erupts in Israel and in Palestine. This first piece is written by Haggai Matar and is published at 972mag.com. This is a terrible day. After waking up to air sirens under a barrage of hundreds of rockets fired on Israeli cities, we have been learning about the unprecedented assault by Palestinian militants from Gaza into Israeli towns bordering the Strip. News is flowing in of at least 40 Israelis killed and hundreds wounded. And those numbers have increased significantly since this story was written. As well as some reportedly kidnapped into Gaza. Meanwhile, the Israeli army has already begun its own offensive on the blockaded strip, with troops mobilizing along the fence and airstrikes killing and wounding scores of Palestinians so far. The absolute dread of people who are seeing armed militants in their streets and homes, or the sight of fighter jets and approaching tanks, is unimaginable. Attacks on civilians are war crimes and my heart goes out to the victims and their families. Contrary to what many Israelis are saying, and while the army was clearly caught completely off guard by this invasion, this is not a, quote, unilateral or, quote, unprovoked attack. The dread Israelis are feeling right now, myself included, is a sliver of what Palestinians have been feeling on a daily basis under the decades-long military regime in the West Bank and under the siege and repeated assaults on Gaza. The responses we are hearing from many Israelis today of people calling to flatten Gaza, that these are savages, not people you can negotiate with, they are murdering whole families, there is no room to talk with these people, are exactly what I have heard occupied Palestinians say about Israelis countless times. The attack this morning also has more recent contexts. One of them is the looming horizon of a normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. For years, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been making the case that peace can be achieved without talking to Palestinians or making any concessions. The Abraham Accords have stripped Palestinians of one of their last bargaining chips and support bases, the solidarity of Arab governments, despite that solidarity having long been questionable. The high likelihood of losing perhaps the most important of those Arab states may well have helped push Hamas to the edge. Meanwhile, commentators have been warning for weeks that recent escalations in the occupied West Bank are leading to dangerous paths. Throughout the past year, more Palestinians and Israelis have been killed than in any other year since the Second Intifada of the early 2000s. The Israeli army is routinely raiding into Palestinian cities and refugee camps. 
The far-right government is giving settlers an entirely free hand to set up new illegal outposts and launch pogroms on Palestinian towns and villages, with soldiers accompanying the settlers and killing or maiming Palestinians trying to defend their homes. Amid the high holidays, Jewish extremists are challenging the status quo around the Temple Mount Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, backed by politicians who share their ideology. In Gaza, meanwhile, the ongoing siege is continuously destroying the lives of over 2 million Palestinians, many of whom are living in extreme poverty with little access to clean water and about four hours of electricity a day. And that is because Israel manages all of the electricity and the water that, that gets to Gaza. This siege has no official end game. Even an Israeli state comptroller report found that the government has never discussed long-term solutions to ending the blockade, nor seriously considered any alternatives to recurring rounds of war and death. It is literally the only option this government and its predecessors have on the table. The only answers that consecutive Israeli governments have offered to the problem of Palestinian attacks from Gaza have been in the form of band-aids. If they come from the ground, we'll build a wall. If they come through tunnels, we'll build an underground barrier. If they fire rockets, we'll set up interceptors. If they are killing some of ours, we will kill many more of them. And so it goes on and on. All this is not to justify the killing of civilians. That is absolutely wrong. Rather, it is meant to remind us that there is a reason to everything that is happening today and that, as in all previous rounds, there is no military solution to Israel's problem with Gaza, nor to the resistance that naturally emerges as a response to violent apartheid. In recent months, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been marching for democracy and equality across the country, with many even saying they would refuse military service because of this government's authoritarian trends. What those protesters and reserve soldiers need to understand, especially today, as many of them announce they will halt their protests and join the war with Gaza, is that Palestinians have been struggling for those same demands and more for decades, facing an Israel that to them is already, and has always been, completely authoritarian. As I write these words, I am sitting at home in Tel Aviv trying to figure out how to protect my family in a house with no shelter or safe from. Following with growing panic, the reports and rumors of horrible events taking place in the Israeli towns near Gaza which are under attack. I see people, some of them my friends, calling on social media to attack Gaza more fiercely than ever before. Some Israelis are saying that now is the time to eradicate Gaza entirely, essentially calling for genocide. Through all the explosions, the dread and the bloodshed, speaking about peaceful solutions seems like madness to them. Yet I remember that everything I am feeling now, which every Israeli must be sharing, has been the life experience of millions of Palestinians for far too long. The only solution as it has always been, is to bring an end of apartheid, occupation, and siege, and promote a future based on justice and equality for all of us. It is not in spite of the horror 
that we have to change course. It is exactly because of it. And finally, here's a short piece also published today uh, at PeninsulaQatar.com. The Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs attributed the flare-up of violence and lack of peace and security in the region to the international silence over the occupation's criminal practices, double standards, and continuation of injustice and oppression directed towards the Palestinian people. The lack of a solution for the Palestinian cause after 75 years of suffering and displacement, continuation of double standards policy, international community silence over the criminal and racial practices perpetuated by the Israeli occupation forces, and the persistent injustice and oppression are the primary reasons behind the flare-up, as well as lack of peace and security in the region, the ministry said in a statement on Saturday. The Israeli evasion from the signed agreements and non-commitment with the international legitimacy resolutions led to the destruction of peace process, the statement added, pointing out that peace needs justice, freedom, and independence for the Palestinian people with the essential return of refugees and enforcement of all international legitimacy resolutions. The Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs stressed that the thing that offers security, stability, and peace in the region is the end of the occupation of the territories of the state of Palestine with eastern Jerusalem as its capital on 1967 lines, along with the recognition of Palestinians' right to independence and sovereignty. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. When new episodes of this podcast and my other podcasts come out, you can find them posted in the Fediverse at movingtrainmedia at collectiva.social. You can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And here is the truth from the album The Miseducation of the Masses. This is Crimes in Palestine featuring Anna Baltzer, for your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Jewish people deserve human rights just as all people do. But the state of Israel has no right to oppress, rob, and slaughter Palestinians and to deny Palestinians human rights. I mean, everything Israel does, they say they do it for security. Anna, tell them what you think about that. There's nothing defensive about denying Palestinians water. Yeah. Not long ago, over a thousand Palestinians died. About 16 Israelis died. Is that a conflict or a genocide? It's not anti-Semitic, opposing government policies known to be pathetic. Come on, 
The government doesn't represent the people Many Israeli activists yell the government is evil Crusades with modern weapons, they keep making sequels It's apartheid, you find walls of separation They used to keep Arabs out of the Jewish nation But people on both sides oppose the situation You never know it from the mass media lies They spread it and censor it Seek media that's independent Cause the government uses the news to spread their views It's their spin and they profit off battles that they win What would you do if you were born in Palestine Had no way to leave and saw bombs in the sky Would you fight back or sit and watch your family members die Why is Israel unaccountable for crimes? Sensitive and false are going on the Daily Show. They lie and hide those crimes we need to know. Our taxes fund $7 million given daily for building weapons used by the Israeli military. It's not about the Bible or Quran when they bomb. It's about the sickness, the greed for the riches. The government doesn't represent the people and the interests, so the people gotta react with actions to flip this. The witness went to oppression with quickness. They do it for democracy? That's just a mockery. Like writing the Constitution, owning slaves on their property. They aim to brainwash. Brainwash, they needed to blame it all on Hamas. Like when they blame the Indians, they call them militants. Do some due diligence. History is written by who had the biggest weapons. History's his story and how his lies spread it. The media's his tool to keep us fools that's distracted. For truth, we buy bombs, it's a comp paying taxes. Security or isn't it? Starving Palestinians. Israelis are admitting it, their government committing it. They censor the animals are going on a daily show. They lie and hide those crimes we need to know. Our taxes fund seven million. Dollars given daily for building weapons used by the Israeli military. They say a separation of church and state, but wait, wait. They created a Jewish state in 1948, but they placed it in a land that was ran by Palestine. Britain didn't care about the Arabs there to die. They conquered it. People lived there, man, it was monstrous. Think what this country did. When Britain was on top of it, we need a one-state solution, a people's revolution, refuting the division of living in separation. For ethnic relations, that only spells devastation, man, have a revelation, we all humans, that's the same, and no group is prominent, no group should be dominant. Slave trade atrocities were just as bad or worse as the curse of the Nazis. You can't have democracy created by atrocity, it's hypocrisy, we're living in a theocracy. I'm tired of the lies, cause they value Jewish lives over Arabs when they die, and they sense it, and the false are going on a day. Daily show, they lie and hide those crimes we need to know. Our taxes fund seven million dollars given daily for building weapons used by the Israeli military. They censor the animals are going on a daily show. They lie and hide those crimes we need to know. Our taxes fund seven million dollars given daily for building weapons used by the Israeli military. The apartheid they got going on, it's like the apartheid that happened in South Africa. The apartheid that happened here in the U.S. All groups should be equal. Equally accountable to mend the situation and the occupation. There's nothing defensive about preventing people from having materials to, to build their homes. There's, I mean, it, so much of the institutions that I, you know, that I understood to be defensive cannot be justified by security anymore. Building a wall between Palestinians and Palestinians. Check out Anna in the Middle East.com.